From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, while state law requires law enforcement agencies to report when an officer quits or is fired and why, a recent investigation found this reporting isn't happening in a majority of cases. Verite's Richard Webster joins us for more. Plus, we hear about a new documentary from Louisiana Public Broadcasting that explores the plight of the Pornishin Indian tribe and the challenges they face in saving their homes, land, language, and culture. But first. If anyone were to break it, it would probably be at a smaller school and with someone whose sole purpose is to try and break Pete Maravich's record. That was Marshall Terrell, co-author of the biography Maravich. Over the summer, he joined Louisiana Considered to discuss the legacy of LSU basketball star Pistol Pete Maravich and whether or not anyone might ever beat his record for all-time points scored in the NCAA. And Terrell was right. Antoine Davis comes from a small school, Detroit Mercy, and by all accounts has been chasing this record, but he fell four points short of his accolade in a game against Youngstown State. Of course, there are some big differences between Davis and Maravich. Maravich set the record in just three years and without the advantage of the three-point line, while Davis had the advantage of three-pointers and played for five years thanks to the COVID extension rule. But there are also some big similarities. Both were coached by their fathers during their college careers. And Davis's most recent game in Youngstown, Ohio, was played just about an hour away from Maravich's birthplace in Pennsylvania. And they even have similar techniques. Here's sports broadcaster Chip Bayless. I love his kid. He, he's a good kid. Mm-hmm. And he has a lot of talent. But I love the fact that Mike Davis told Antoine, his son, when he was a little kid, If you want to learn to play this game, you go watch Pete Maravich instructional videos. They're all over the Internet Mm -hmm. because he told his son he's the only superstar who could actually explain exactly how he did what he did. Right. So go watch these videos. And that's what Antoine grew up on. Last July, Louisiana considered Zelana Schreiber spoke to Marshall Terrell, co-author of the biography Maravich. While we wait to see whether or not Davis will have another chance to break this record at a future tournament, we'll give this conversation a second listen. Pistol Pete Maravich, a name many of us associate with Louisiana, but his life and career didn't start here. So give us a little backstory. Where is he from? Who are his parents? And how did they shape him into the player he became? Well, Pete Maravich was born in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, which is steel country. And uh, his parents press and Helen Maravich. Press was going to go, um, he was going to become a a commercial airline pilot. And so um, Helen was really quite upset about that because her husband had died in war and didn't want to lose another person. So he said, okay, for you, I'll go into basketball. Well, let's dig into his college career. Maravich played at LSU under his father's coaching, scoring 3,667 points in his three years. Tell us a bit more about his undergraduate playing career and his accomplishments and growth during that time. Well, his growth luckily uh, had had happened um, because he was really a small kid. As a matter of fact, when he played in junior high school, he was five foot two. And then he had this incredible growth spurt where he was about six, four, six, five. But he came to LSU with a reputation. Basketball back then was, you know, a little bit more in, not in the shadows, but People would whisper, and if you wanted to see something, you had to go see it yourself in person. 
as as a freshman, you know, people would go and they would go see his basketball games. And you would have, you know, 15,000 people showing up at the Cal Palace. And then when that game was over, they would leave in droves and there was maybe a thousand people left for the varsity game. It was really quite embarrassing. Well, Pistol Pete still holds the record for most points scored in the NCAA, a record that not only was set before the addition of the three-point line, but one he's held on to for more than 50 years. It seems so unlikely that he would still be holding this record, but he is. So how improbable is that? Well, you know, we we always called them, uh, when we did the book, Ruthian Records, meaning Babe Ruth, meaning we thought maybe it would last 40, 50 years. And I think now it would really be tough for anybody to break that record now because after their first or second year, they're, they're going to be going into the pros. If anyone were to break it, it would probably be at a smaller school and with someone whose sole purpose is to try and break Pete Maravich's record. Well, Maravich played basketball at a time when the game was changing pretty rapidly. The three-point line was added in 1979, initially on a trial basis, then it stuck. And then in the late 70s and early 80s is when we start to see more players of a celebrity-like status come into play. We have Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. How do you think Maravich adapted to these changes, and do you think he was a part of it? Well, he was not only a part of it, but he led that way. And the sad part was, was that he was not recognized for it at the time. He now is, but he he did recognize that there was magic and Bird, and he was by the way he was Bird's teammate at the last year of his career. Um, he recognized that um, they were going to to take the mantle from him and do take a little bit more what he did and make it a little bit more acceptable, and that's exactly what they did because that's ex- that's what basketball needed at the time was Showtime. You know that was that was his nickname. He called himself Showtime, and then of course that was adopted by the Lakers and and people just uh, absolutely loved it and they were ready for it, but they weren't ready for it in the seventies with Pete Maravich. He just brought a spark and a mystique and excellence to basketball. That was Louisiana considered Delana Schreiber speaking with Marshall Terrell, co-author of the biography Maravich. State law requires law enforcement agencies to report when an officer quits or is fired and why. It also requires hiring agencies to check this information before hiring officers who left other departments. A new police accountability database created by the Innocence Project New Orleans found the reporting isn't happening in a majority of cases. Investigative reporter Richard Webster covered this story for the New Orleans newsroom Verite. Richard joins me now. Richard, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Let's start with what state law requires happen when an officer quits or is fired. How did that law come about and when? Uh, So the law was first enacted in 2017, and this was a time when Louisiana as a whole was reforming its criminal justice system, which was often seen as one of the harshest and most draconian in the country. And so the bill requires that law enforcement agencies report when and why officers leave. They could be either, you know, they either quit or they're fired. And then the reason why they either quit or were fired. And they're supposed to report this to post. This is known as the Council on Peace Officer Standards and Training. And, you know, the bill was meant to discourage what are called, quote, wandering officers. 
And these are officers who are fired from one department for maybe possible misconduct claims and then rehired by another. And the experts that we spoke to said laws like Louisiana's can really help to prevent these problem officers from escaping accountability. Now, your story for Verite credits the Innocence Project New Orleans creation of a database for discovering a problem with compliance with this law. What's included in the database? What did they find? And and which areas of the state had the greatest levels of noncompliance? So the Innocence Project New Orleans, this is a longtime organization that works to free people from prison, you know, people who are innocent or were unjustly sentenced many times to life sentences. And I spoke to the executive director of IPNO, G. Park, and she said that, you know, in looking at their cases, oftentimes they'll see the same names of detectives uh, allegedly involved in misconduct that lead to sort of these unjust sentences. And the names of these detectives will come up over and over again in their cases. So they wanted a way to track these officers, you know, to get all of their personnel files, to get a better understanding of the misconduct claims and track them if they move from department to department. So in order to do this, they created uh, this database, which is called LEAD or the Louisiana Law Enforcement Accountability Database. And this is something that's available to the public. There's a link to the database in our story. And, you know, it includes everything from misconduct claims to citizen complaints, uh, disciplinary proceedings and use of force reports. And, you know, these are things that are oftentimes hard for the public to get access to. And the database, you know, one of the vital things is it also tracks the movement of officers uh, from department to department. And, you know, one of the biggest findings of this lead database was that Uh, Of the 148 officers who changed employment status since 2018, their law enforcement agencies failed to report to post a reason why in 51% of the cases. And of those officers, at least 14, uh, you know, where there wasn't a reported reason for why they left, were rehired by another agency. And, you know, that's problematic if these officers were rehired unknowingly, you know, and they had all of these misconduct claims in the past. That's an astounding number, more than 50% not reporting. Why are so many law enforcement agencies not reporting this required information to post when officers are fired, when they're quit? Uh, uh, What are the authorities saying about this? You know, in the experts I spoke to for this story, you know, one of the reasons is that the law itself doesn't include a penalty for those law enforcement agencies that fail to report when and why officers leave. So, you know, in essence, there isn't a stick to get them to comply. And then another is that, you know, many of these smaller agencies and some of the more rural parishes, they may not just be aware of this requirement. And, you know, it could be as simple as that. One side of this problem is, you know, law enforcement agencies not reporting. The other is agencies not having important information to aid them in hiring. We know that uh, departments across the state are looking to increase their ranks and they are hiring. How might this information help them? So we spoke with uh, Mike Bakar, and he's the head of this group called the International Association of Directors of Law Enforcement Standards and Training. That's a really, really long name. But, uh, you know, his group was one of the first, it created one of the first national databases about 20 years ago. And he said they did so because they were noticing this trend of officers fired for misconduct being rehired by neighboring um, departments. 
And, you know, I asked him this question and he said, one of the problems is that a lot of these smaller police departments simply lack the resources or time to conduct, you know, really thorough, proper background checks when they're hiring someone. So, you know, it seems sort of an obvious thing to look into the past of someone, but, you know, they just don't have the money to do so. And so making this information easily accessible is just incredibly important. And, you know, we also spoke with Stella Zement, who's the independent police monitor here in New Orleans. And she said this database created by the Innocence Project, you know, it couldn't have come at a better time because, as a lot of people know, the New Orleans Police Department is engaged in this huge hiring push to address its manpower shortage. So this database will allow outside groups like the independent police monitor to really scrutinize potential hires. And, you know, if something is overlooked uh, by the department, they'll be able to warn them that, hey, you might be hiring a high risk officer or someone who has, you know, a host of previous misconduct claims. Well, is there anything else, any other database out there like this that's just been created by by the Innocence Project? You know, I mean, I guess that's sort of the shocking thing, but maybe it shouldn't be shocking, but not really. Uh, It's very limited. There's, you know, nothing like it in Louisiana and attempts to create similar databases, you know, both on the federal and state levels have been really limited. Um, President Biden signed an order in May to create a national database of misconduct records for federal law enforcement agencies, not state, but that hasn't even launched yet. And on the state level, there are only 12 states that operate similar misconduct databases as the one created by the Innocence Project. So there's really hardly anything like that out there, which makes the creation of this so important. Verite reporter Richard Webster. Richard, thanks so much for the information. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. This Thursday, Louisiana Public Broadcasting will premiere the documentary film The Precipice. From filmmaker Ben Johnson, this documentary explores the plight of the Poinishin Indian tribe and the challenges they face in saving their homes, land, language, and culture. Here to tell us more about this film and what he learned throughout the production is LPB senior producer and filmmaker Ben Johnson. Ben, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Can you start by telling us about some of these specific challenges the Poinishin have faced over the years? What are some of the most pressing issues currently? Uh, absolutely. I would say the number one most pressing issue um, that they have faced over the past several decades is uh, the erosion of their land, the loss of their land. And um, the Poinishin tribe is located in, in Lower Terrebonne Parish on the Terrebonne Basin. And the Terrebonne Basin is the fastest eroding basin in the United States. So they watch their land disappear on a yearly basis. Um, and they also have to be self-sufficient and trying to protect their land on a yearly basis. So it, there's not much help from, you know, uh, from outside sources. And so they are actively trying to protect their land, their sacred sites and their culture. But I, I would say another big pressing issue and the issue that brought me down to Poinisha in the first place is their fight for education. Um, that's a, a theme throughout the film. Um, the, the, the tribe wasn't allowed to be educated until the late 1960s after um, 
after the civil rights movement and after integration of the schools, the, the tribe still wasn't allowed in until later, uh, a few years after that. And what brought me down to Point of Shen was the closing of their elementary school in April of 2021. Um, and so it was a, a continuing uh, issue that keeps coming back up with the tribe. And I would say that their fight for education and their fight to to combat climate change are the two biggest issues I see um, the fight, the, the tribe facing. I want to dig a little deeper into the issue of climate change. What is it about the land that they live on that makes them so vulnerable? 60 years ago, there were cattle grazing and they, you know, there was a a hundred years ago, there was a sugarcane farm actually that was on the land and that land is now gone. So it's, it's a, it's an issue of them losing their wetlands and making them more susceptible to storms. And so I started filming with them in April of 2021. Um, and five months into production, Hurricane Ida literally made a, a direct hit on the tribe, uh, on, on Point of Shen. And so it was destruction unlike anything I've ever seen. And it was direct, direct result of them losing their wetlands, losing the land and, and pretty much they're in the they're right at the mouth of the gulf gulf of mexico and storms come in and there's nothing to protect them from those storms and so these storms are getting stronger and more frequent and their land is is disappearing at a rate where they're worried for for their future they're literally watching their land wash away and i know you said that the land is tied to their identity can you talk some about that what do you mean when you say that the land is tied to their identity this this tribe has has been in Poinishan since the year 900. Artifacts date them back to the year 900, and the people of the tribe have have historically been fishermen, oystermen, shrimpers. People are living on the bayou. Their boats are on the bayou. They they get out of their house, they go on their boat, and they go fishing, and they're self sustaining. They they live off the land, and so there's really no place else for them to go to continue that culture of, of fishing and and doing what they've done for <laughs> hundreds of years. Um, and then another big aspect of this is the tribe also is French speaking. So they, they speak a dialect of French called Indian French. It's a mixture of Chittimacha words with the French language. And because of this land loss, you know, a lot of the younger generation are not staying around in Point of Shen. And um, there's a fear that the language and the identity to the, the, the tribe's identity involving the language and the land is going to disappear someday. And so they're trying to do all they can to stop that. I know the film also focuses on the ways that the government's been a force in challenging the Poinishian way of life, simply uh, not giving them the support they need, even to the, the point of acknowledging them as, as a tribe. What are some of the specifics there? Yeah. Um, so that's a big part of this film is that their fight for federal recognition. And the tribe has started their petition for federal recognition, which just is forming a government to government relationship with the United States. Um, they've been starting, they started that petition in 1996. So this has been decades long fight to be just recognized as an Indian tribe. Um, the tribe was awarded state recognition in 2005, but are on their, are on their last leg of the federal petition. So you know, federal federal recognition would give them resources to protect their land, to have more control over their land, um, and to have the resources when storms come through to be protected. I mean, I went down literally the week after Hurricane Ida, and the tribe themselves were clearing out the roads and 
cleaning out people's houses and there was literally there's no government help and so they want government a federal recognition to come in and and, and give them control of their land, but also help them in, in disaster resiliency. We're speaking with LPB senior producer and filmmaker Ben Johnson about his new film, The Precipice. It follows the challenges faced by the Pointishan Indian tribe. Ben, this film is an all doom and gloom. In addition to outlining the challenges that this community faces, you also share the battles that they won. What are some of those examples? Absolutely. Um, the the tribe, as I mentioned, they, their elementary school, Pointe Elementary School, was closed in April of 2021. And even after Hurricane Ida, after the devastation of their town, they continued to fight to get a French immersion school in the town. And they introduced a bill into the legislature um, to start a French immersion school in the building that the former Pointe Elementary School was in. That bill passed the House and Senate with zero nay votes. It was it was unanimously unanimously approved, um, and their their the front the Pointe-a-Shen, Ecole Pointe-a-Shen, French Immersion School is going to open in August of this year. Tell me a bit about some of the main people highlighted in the film. Who who they are and and what the audience yeah. will learn from them. So my main character is Patty Ferguson Bonnie, um, who is a, a member of the Pointe-a-Shen tribe, but is also uh, the attorney for the tribe, and she is the lead on their fight for federal recognition. So throughout the film, you'll you'll watch her as she tries to kind of piece together the tribe's history. She has to find a lot of documentation, a lot of oral histories, piecing those together to fill in the petition for federal recognition. Um, but she also is is down there helping the tribe throughout their the struggles after Hurricane Ida. Um, and so she is really my main character throughout the film, but there's plenty of others. There's Laura, Dr. Laura Kelly at uh, Tulane University is the historian for the tribe. And she kind of pieces together the history of, of how long they've been there. And then there's also just members of the, the tribe that I follow along, like Alex Billiot, who's just a, a local crab, uh, crab fisherman in Pointe Um, there's uh, Russell Nockhan, who is, is an elder of the tribe, and his house was completely destroyed after Ida, and we kind of follow him, taking us on a boat ride through the land, as well as taking us to his house and showing us the damage that was done. Um, and there's just a countless other uh, characters. It's a, it's a community full of characters, honestly, hmm. and uh, be- beautiful people. Well, uh, upon announcing the release of the film, uh, LPB Executive Director Linda Midget said, I'm quoting her here, the story of the Poinishan is both a uniquely Louisiana story, but their challenge also has a global impact. Ben, can you break that down for us? Why is this story both so Louisiana and also so universal? Yeah, uh, the the title of the film is The Precipice, and it kind of has um, three parts to that title. Um that you can dive into, you know, first the tribe is on the precipice of either getting federal recognition or not. Um, but on top of that, the tribe is also on the precipice of holding on to their land and, and finding solutions to hold on to their land or losing it. On, on the national level and the worldwide level, we're on the precipice of either figuring out the climate change issue or, or not. And in my opinion, if we can't save a town like Poinichon, who's on the front line of climate change right now, then it, it says a lot about our future. LPB senior producer and filmmaker Ben Johnson, his new film, The Precipice, 
premieres at 7 p.m. on March 9th. Ben, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Karen. I appreciate it. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guests, Marshall Terrell, co-author of the biography Meravich, Richard Webster, reporter for Verite, and Ben Johnson, filmmaker and producer of The Precipice. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Omholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Procell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.